So we're coming towards the end of our first full day of practice together on this retreat. Jaya and I are really appreciating your commitment and the sincerity with which it seems like you're engaging with this practice. Uh, this hall has been kind of unusually still and quiet uh, for a retreat on which there are so many people who are here for the first time. So really heartfelt appreciation for your practice today. So, so easy to uh, assume that um, because it, at times it's difficult, it means I'm not doing it right, you know. It's, it's good just to check if, if there is a belief, you know, if you have a belief that somehow your experience should be different from how it is. Anyone notice that? You know? <laughs> Sometimes we add the kind of phrase like, by now, <laughs> on the end of that. And, you know, really just to see the, the arbitrariness of that, the relativity of that belief. I mean, who says? Who, who said it should be different from how it is? You know? We, we kind of import all these measuring scales so easily, don't we, that, that we kind of hold up against our experience and, you know, how this particular sitting goes assumes this huge kind of significance and it means something about me as a person or a meditator or a you know, potential mindfulness teacher. And really an encouragement to let all that go, to see that that's all entirely optional suffering. <laughs> you, know? you know, the, the phrase compare and despair. You know? And uh, the Buddha highlighted how this, this pattern of comparison with, with other people, or put it more precisely, with our imagining of other people, or with our imagining of some kind of ideal or by now kind of thing. You know, these, these patternings are very deeply ingrained in us and are the, the cause of a great deal of suffering and they're optional, you know. And just to notice how much um, goodness has been cultivated during today. You know, we, we so easily, in our readiness to compare, overlook the, all those moments of patience, all those moments of commitment that have brought us back, all those moments of being willing to begin again, to sit with sleepiness or boredom or anxiety, you know all those moments of kindness to other people and as some of you have been reporting to ourselves you know these are not negligible these these are the these are the cultivation of the practice and there's a way in which the benefits of this practice kind of come up through the floorboards rather than through the front door you know, that they kind of accrue over time. You know, you can have a sense at the end of a day of practice, well, God, I still can't, you know, follow two breaths in a row. But there's something about just trusting that the, the sitting and the walking, the showing up, the coming back to your feet and your breath in the TQ, that the offering, you know, holding the door open for people. These, these, these kind of cultivations, they bear fruit in time. They really do, you know. And, and those of you who have been doing this for a while will know that. Something 
over time imperceptibly changes. You know. And our job is really just to show up and do the practice and not to worry about the results. Okay? You know. And that's a relief. <laughs> that's a relief. The coming back to the body, the coming back to sensing the body, as Jaya so beautifully described this morning. You know. This is so foundational in this practice. You know, those of you who are studying mindfulness-based approaches will, will be aware of this kind of uh, mapping of experience in terms of modes of mind, a, a thinking, conceiving, driven doing mode and a mindful sensing embodied mode being mode as it's sometimes called and you know this this practice this this gradual accruing of benefits coming through the floorboards uh, is so often about just repeatedly choosing sensing choosing to sense coming back to our sensing, our senses, <laughs> you know. Choosing feet over judgments and comparison. <laughs> They're much more trustworthy, much more trustworthy, you know. And, you know, what, I, again, so, so um, there's something so kind of timeless about this. The, one sees that in the Buddha's time, this is what he was recommending, you know, choosing to sense the body, to, as he puts it, know the body as the body. To, to breathe in sensitive to the body, to breathe out sensitive to the body. And really, he was so unequivocal about the foundational uh, role that body plays in this practice. You know? He said, you know, the person who has no mindfulness of the body has no mindfulness at all. Or a way, you could hear that, in the moments when I have no mindfulness of the body, I have no mindfulness at all. You know? And he also said, you know, all of the teachings can be found in the body. All of the teachings can be found in this, as he put it, fathom-long body. The, the understanding of suffering, the understanding of the origin of suffering, the understanding of the ending of suffering, the cultivation of the way to the ending of suffering, all found within this body, the body that's sitting in your seat. You know? This is our curriculum. <laughs> this is our classroom. This is our extraordinary opportunity as, as human beings to live more embodied lives that are characterized by embodied presence that we call mindfulness, friendly, interested, allowing, compassionate, appreciative. And as we've uh, been saying during the day, the, the Buddha really encouraged a seamlessness of embodied presence during our days and nights. <laughs> You know, really, you know, to practice uh, a sense that we're not snipping the day up into separate periods, you know, sitting period, walking period. So it's really one long meditation in which we just change postures a few times during the day. You know. And, you know, the, the Buddha was pretty um, kind of... Uh, yeah, gritty uh, in in saying this is to be cultivated in all activities. He said, you know, moving and carrying, eating and drinking and tasting, defecating, urinating, 
falling asleep, waking up, speaking, staying silent, to which we could add, you know, vacuuming and cleaning teeth and chopping vegetables and holding cups of tea and, you know, all the activities in our day here. And that's part of the beautiful simplicity of being on retreat where we, you know, there isn't so much feeding of the verbal conceptual mode. And we have this sense of being able to be more embodied in activities. We're not kind of dusting and listening to the radio or, you know, drinking tea and having a conversation. The opportunity to do those in sensing, kind of being mode. And it is interesting to notice, you know, which activities do we tend to miss out? You know, sometimes people notice they, or I, I, I notice sometimes on retreat, get into the bathroom, lock the door, oh, thank goodness, kind of off-duty, you know, feeling. Well, that's curious, isn't it? What's the kind of whole on-duty perception, <laughs> you know? Because it's not like we're being asked to do something onerous or dutiful, it's just... Can I just sense the body? Can I just be here for this and not exclude anything? And, you know, there can be, um, it, it can, Joseph Goldstein encourages certain tags when you're on retreat, like reaching for things. Because we often do that on autopilot, don't we? I reach for a mug, you know, I kind of lunge for the tea or I, I reach to serve something or reach for a door handle. And just to have that sense of, okay, when I'm reaching, I'm going to pra- let that be a, a moment of mindfulness. I find climbing stairs. I try when on retreat, particularly when climbing stairs, just to use it as a, a moment to kind of collect, you know, just to do it really mindfully supports you know, mindfulness during the day. And so really, you kind of, at the end of the, this day, just reflecting, okay, without judgment, you know, knowing you're welcome to add judgment, but it's entirely optional, you know. When were the m- more mindful moments and when were the less mindful moments during the day? You know? And what would it be like to bring a, uh, you know, to be more inclusive as a practice of joy, as a practice of kind of aliveness, as a, a practice of inclusivity in my life, you know. And the slowing down helps, the slowing down, you know, from all that we know, about the way the nervous system works. You know, slowing down (laughs) is one of the kindest things we can do to reintegrate, you know, body, heart, mind, to recollect ourselves, remember, remember ourselves, you know. Slowing down, softening. And what we can notice often when we slow down is it's more possible to fill the awareness with the body when I'm moving at a more kind of organic pace, uh, a pace that's driven more by sensing the body than by the thought of where I'm going or what I've got to get done, you know? Can even find ourselves on retreat kind of walking along corridors at that angle. You know, and I've got to get to the, you know. <laughs> but to, to, to sense the body and let, let it more the, the kind of felt sense of the body, orienting more to that than to, you know, the thoughts, the, even to the corridor, you know, without wishing to set up accidents but you know just to let the felt sense of the body be our primary orientation during the day 
The Buddha described this as protective awareness. Because, you know, awareness, well, it says in the MBCT book, you know, awareness is a limited capacity channel. So it's, it's you know, there's a, it has a limited capacity. And, and if we fill it with the sensations of the body, we're probably not going to be filling it with all those judgments and comparisons and measurements and not good enoughs and should be different, <laughs> right? You know, the Buddha compared it to filling a jug with water. He said, you know, if you have an empty jug, then water can be put in it. And he said, uh, if you have an empty jug, it's like an uninhabited body, a body not inhabited but with mindfulness. And Mara can put thoughts and confusions and delusions in. Mara is in the Buddhist kind of, um, uh, I suppose, mythology in a certain way or imaginative um, cosmos, the, the, the personification of delusion, obstruction, the hindrances that we spoke about earlier. You know, so when we're not inhabiting the body, we're vulnerable to being carried away by our thoughts and our ruminations. He said, fill the jug with water, fill the body with awareness, like Jaya invited us to do during the movement, you know, filling the whole body with awareness, friendly awareness. You know, try it now. Like a jug, completely filled, every cell, every pore soaked in friendly awareness. Just as, you know, as much as is possible in this moment. But just notice, you can't think all those mind-filling thoughts in the same way when we're really inhabiting the body. Do, do you sense that? It, it, you know, really to choose sensing quietens down the thinking. You know? And of course it goes back to the thinking, but then we just keep coming back to the sensing, filling the body with friendly awareness. You know? And, you know, this is a practice, this is a, a cultivation, this is something that the more we do it, and again, you know, we now know the neuroscience of this in a way that the Buddha didn't, but extraordinarily anticipated, <laughs> you know, that the more we practice this sensing of the body, the more available it becomes to us. It comes up through the floorboards, our capacity just to be more in touch with sensations. You know. And again, just to pick up a word that Jaya used as we were doing the movement, this, this word listening. There's something about listening that I, I notice, for me, feels a bit more alive even than sensing. Because there's a, there's a kind of interest in listening to the body. It's not just choosing a different mode, it's, it's more relational, <laughs> you know? Listening to this body that's sitting in your seat right now. listening for the breathing, the movement of the breathing, like if you imagine, if we imagine some kind of caring healer who's, who's tracking a pulse and really listening deeply into the nervous system, following that. You know, remembering that this body is a living being, <laughs> you know, it's not some it's not just some kind of machine. The Buddha compared it to holding a bird, holding a quail. Describe mindfulness of the body, holding a quail. Holding it just right. You know, if I, if I hold it too tight, it'll die, it'll suffocate. If I hold it too loose, it'll fly away. Can I find that, that tender, caring, listening presence with this precious body 
that really enables a staying with, a kind staying with, a deep listening, a sense that the body could teach us how to be with it rather than my ideas about how to be with it, you know, rather than what it says, you know, says in the books about how, how to do mindfulness of breathing, my, my manual. What about letting the body teach us how to be present with it and how to sustain that? This, this sense of, of it like a craft, mindfulness of the body, that we let the material, we let the living material of embodiment teach us how to be present with it, with that kind of tenderness and care. You know. Ooh, we start to become more dynamic, don't we, if we do it like that, rather than impose the concept mindfulness of breathing, we, we become more responsive, more relational more listening into the body's intelligence. You know, the body knows, the body and heart, they know how to unbind. They know how to release. They know how to settle and to cohere. And they're, they're kind of just waiting to be listened to enough <laughs> to show us. Or at least try that out as a hypothesis. You know, you don't have to believe that, but it's 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 worth trying out as as a way of relating. You know, that the body, you know, when given enough ground, when given enough safety, when given enough space, when given enough kindness, when given enough sense of allowing when given enough permission rather than having a kind of plan or model imposed on it, how it should be, how it should be different generally, you know? Actually, you know, trying out whether that doesn't actually allow it to find its way of settling, releasing, becoming a more easeful field of sensation and presence in which to dwell over time, over time. Patience. Patience. It's a craft. The Buddha lived in a craft culture. So often compares practice to, to a craft. He kind of presents it as a craft. And what do crafts take? They take patience, don't they? They take listening to the, the material. They take commitment. They take a certain playfulness and enjoyment. They take, certainly in my experience, not comparing <laughs> and measuring with how I think it should be, whether the craft is, you know, uh, pottery or painting or parenting or, you know, music making or mindfulness, <laughs> you know. And that sense of spacious awareness. You know, there's a spaciousness when we're engaging in a craft as a hobby rather than, you know, making it something that I get too serious about, you know, making, keeping it play. The spaciousness that says breathing in sensitive to the entire body, breathing out sensitive to the entire body. That sense of spaciousness, very supportive, this whole body awareness. It's actually followed by a phrase, breathing in. This, this is, the, I should say actually, these are phrases and recommendations from these four foundations of mindfulness, as they're sometimes called, four ways of establishing mindfulness. In the Pali, it's the Satipatthana Sutta. Sati meaning mindfulness, 
Patana, meaning establishing or the presence of. The word sutta meaning teaching or discourse. So the, the Buddha's teaching on the establishing of mindfulness that really underlies all contemporary mindfulness-based programs. Because you know, it's uh, so deeply relevant. And uh, these quotations about sensitive to the entire body comes from the body section, this first satipatthana. Um, and it's followed by this phrase, breathing in calming bodily formations. Breathing out, calming bodily formations. And sounds a little cryptic perhaps, but formations, the word sankara, can also be translated as activations or drives or kind of charges, yeah, patternings, we could say, as well as fabrications, things that get concocted and constructed. And don't we feel that a bit on retreat? We feel these activations kicking off, you know, come on, hurry up, ring the bell, you know, or it's reliving that argument from last week or pre-living that, you know, essay for, oh, I won't mention essays, you know, uh, you know, just feeling these kind of activations that kind of get into the nervous system and, you know, I'm sitting here quietly and with nobody demanding anything and this kind of nervous system's firing, 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 you know. And again, isn't it, it's so interesting that the Buddha, all those centuries ago, had this, was describing this experience that we see that these kind of patterns show up and activate. Activate body, activate perception, activate emotion. You know, I guess cognitive psychology, we call them schemas, you know, that they, they, they kick in and orient us in certain ways. And, you know, the hindrances are certainly the wanting, the not wanting, the doubt, the restlessness. These are all activations. And the Buddha is saying, get really interested in how to calm them, how to soothe them, how to steady them. Breathing in, calming them down, smoothing and soothing them. You know, Breathing out calming them down, smoothing and soothing them. And do you get that sense? You know, can you feel how the breathing can smooth and soothe? Yeah? As can being really discerning about where in the body we take our attention. We sometimes hear this kind of mindfulness instruction, oh, go to the body. Well, kind of depends where, you know? Because some parts of the body may not be helpful to go to. Some of them are very activated, <laughs> right? You know? And, and we need discernment. This is part of the craft, it is learning to be discerning about, well, when the mind is activated in this way, where is it most helpful to go? You know? I mean, rather like we were reflecting this afternoon about sleepiness and restlessness. You know, when the, when the activation is sleepiness, which is a kind of activation, but it's a, a kind of shutting down activation, then doing something energizing, standing up, hands in the air, you know, opening the eyes, that helps to counterbalance it. Moving upwards. <laughs> yeah? But when it it's very restless, oh, moving downwards is probably more helpful. You know? And, you know, this um, Jaya again referred this morning to, to these elements, which is another of the, the body contemplations in this sutta. Uh, the Buddha said, you know, 
experience the body in terms of the elements. And, you know, the foundational element being the earth element. And I don't know about you, but I tend to find that uh, contemporary life sends me up. Yeah? Busyness sends us up. You know? Over busyness, stress sends us up. Education often sends us up, doesn't it? In Oxford, there's a joke that the, uh, for some of the pre- professors, the only reasons why they have the only reason why they have bodies is to carry their heads to meetings. You know, and kind of we know what that feels like, don't we? You know, you, you may know that line from James Joyce's Dubliners, famous. Mindfulness, often quoted in mindfulness circles, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. You know? And we know how Mr. Duffy feels, don't we? You know, or I know how Mr. Duffy feels. And just what a gift it is to cultivate, to practice, to develop the craft of grounding. It's a word we've mentioned once or twice on this retreat so far, (laughs) as you may have noticed. I think we both feel that it's uh, a word that is underused in MBI circles, actually. Because sometimes the breath isn't the most helpful object to go to, because the breath sometimes gets charged with anxiety or agitation. Soles of the feet, on the other hand, are so often such a helpful place to go to. You know? This is the, the earth element, this tuning to, this listening to the sensations of contact with ground, the ground of the floor, the ground of what we're sitting on. Yeah? Heel bones, sit bones. Also, though, the earth element in the body itself. So just notice, you might even right now notice the weight of the limbs. You know, the the feet and the legs have density, they have solidity, they have weight. So do the hands and the arms. And you know, we can often notice, maybe you noticed it yesterday, that we spend a lot of our time kind of counter-gravity, don't we? Up tight, as we say, you know, up tight. And really cultivating this, allowing the weight, the poet Rilke said, patiently trust your own heaviness. Patiently trust your own heaviness. I think there's so much wisdom in that line. You know, the patiently, the coming back to the sense of gravity, the sense of contact, the sense of ground. Patiently. Uptight with an activation in the cinema of the mind, oh, coming back to the sit bones, <laughs> you know. They say in uh, the Tao Te Ching, one translation says, gravity is the root of all grace. You know. And what, you know, part of the opportunity of a retreat where there's more space and less pressure on us to be somebody or to do things is just to have the, that wonderful opportunity to come back into gravity, <laughs> to find our feet, as we say to slow down <laughs> rather we don't slow up we slow down you know to sense the habit the the earth element cuz you know uh, we we are we do kind of read in the mindfulness manual and uh, are told, you know, go to where it's difficult. 
Take your attention to where the sensations are strongest. You know? My sense is that often that is a recipe for getting overwhelmed. If there's not enough sense of ground, if there's not enough sense of resource, it seems often more helpful to know, really to know where in the body is not activated. And can I rest the attention there? Can I make a home there, as Jaya put it? And then from there, relate to the difficult. You know? So relating to it rather than from the difficult. Because <laughs> you know? it's so easy to get overwhelmed, isn't it? But just to notice, you know, the soles of your feet are probably not anxious. You know, your, your sit bones are, are not reliving that argument. You know, your hands are not bored. This is useful to know, you know, because these bits up here may well be reliving it and pre-living it and caught up in it, activated by it. Yeah. But just to have that sense, oh, thank goodness, soles of the feet, <laughs> they're doing fine, you know. And, and it's like kind of plugging a lightning conductor into the ground, you know. Hamlet uses that phrase, doesn't he? The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, you know. How much understanding in that phrase, you know, that sense of the fl how our flesh accumulates the thousand natural shocks and then there's all the unnatural ones as well, you know, that get stored in the body. We sometimes use the word trauma, don't we? You know? And just to know where the lightning conductor is plugged in, this is so helpful. <laughs> you know? This is so helpful. So to let, you know, heel bones, sit bones, hands be kind of energy drains that drains in the sense of we allow things to drain into the earth. We allow the charge to drain into the earth. The safer direction is always downwards. Doesn't mean we only go downwards, but it's so helpful to go downwards first. So they say in somatics, they say, it's like throwing the tennis ball down and then it bounces up. And so helpful, isn't it? You know, when talking to the boss or the difficult teenage son or the, you know, before the difficult meeting or when you're turning on the news and it's another set of horrors, you know, just to find your feet before relating. Can we feel that? Just energetically? If I, if I go into the meeting without having grounded, I'm really vulnerable actually, <laughs> you know? The nervous system's really unregulated and easily impinged upon. But to find the feet to kind of go down in order to go up, you know, or in order to open. In Zen they say, solid as the mountain, open as the ocean. Yeah. And maybe even in this moment you can sense the relationship between those two that actually when there's enough ground it enables an openness. It enables a relationality. It enables the kind of relationality that or w one kind of relationality that we could also call enjoyment. You know, some of you have been noticing today just how enjoyable it can be just to be present for the bird song, the blue sky, the trees, the snow, the sense of space, you know. And, and can, can we sense how when there's enough ground 
there's also a kind of availability for the joys of life. Yeah, the joys and the sorrows. <laughs> and Jaya will be speaking about that tomorrow evening. But there's a kind of resourced availability. A relationality, we could call it. And really just to kind of emphasize the importance of a grounded enjoyment on retreat. That there can be this, I know s very, <laughs> very well, having a, as a friend of mine put it last week, he said, he said, mm, yes, you do have an earnest side, which I think he was <laughs> saying that as an understatement. Um, that that we can turn this into a kind of serious duty, this being on retreat. Have you noticed that at all today? You know. And what is it to really make enjoyment a central theme of our practice? Enjoying. Not as a kind of um you know thing we stumble across but actually is something that we're cultivating. The Buddha said, the skilled practitioner cultivates a sense of enjoyment. And this is the word, this word cultivate is really kind of key. It's the word that the Buddha used for practice. He didn't use the word meditate very much. He used this word cultivate. So again, another craft, a horticulture, yeah? A bringing into being, a nurturing, what do we do when we cultivate seedlings? We, we, we take care of them. We, we tend them. We, we make space for them. We prioritize them. Yeah? And what is it to prioritize and make space for and tend the seedlings of enjoyment? The seedlings of blessing. The sense of, wow, there are many blessings in my life, on this day, in this moment. You know. Isn't it part of the, the uh, amazing, beautiful opportunity of a retreat and of an eight-week course to let ourselves be, kind of, to reawaken to the blessings of our lives, the good things in our lives that we so easily overlook, that get kind of dulled over by familiarity and habit and busyness and, you know, the 10,000 draws in our attention, you know. It's kind of part of the magic of mindfulness, isn't it? <laughs> you know? The pleasant events calendar that kind of encourages us if in those states that we can get into where we can't identify anything that feels good, anything that feels like a blessing, it just reminds us to notice and, and to attend, to receive the grace of the birdsong, the blue sky, you know, or the rain, <laughs> you know, or the weather, however it is. This is, this is so indispensable, so indispensable in this path, in this life, isn't it? You know, to, to count our blessings and to practice an embodied enjoyment of them. It's the big difference that mindfulness makes, isn't it? From just keeping a gratitude journal. It's, it's actually bringing that embodied sensing to the loveliness of things, the taste of food, the sense of kindness, the sense of space. Rick Hansen calls it taking in the good, taking in the good. And the Buddha uses the image of soaking, absorbing, you know, soaking in what's lovely, soaking in the sense of 
space, the lack of pressure, the sense of kindness, the sense of the silence as a friendly silence. He uses, he uses the water element because it gives water element as well as a sense of fluidity has this sense of kind of a cohesion, uh, a, uh, a kind of saturation in what's nourishing in our lives. And this really is, you know, central to the art of being on retreat. Really kind of indispensable to the art of being on retreat. It can transform it, <laughs> you know. Just kind of starting a feedback loop of, of appreciation. <laughs> Particularly when things are difficult. Because one of the things we can notice is that appreciating things doesn't depend on everything being okay. Can, can you f feel that? You know? That there can be discomfort in the body, in the mind, and I can still pause and hear the rooks. Or and enjoy the view, you know? So yeah, this difficulty and these blessings. Sometimes tell the story of dear, one of our dear friends, James Barras, who's a Dharma teacher in the States, who uh, when his mother was 92, I think, he taught her a practice. And she, by her own admission, had spent her whole life Kvetching, which um, she, she explains it in a lovely clip on uh, James's website, means kind of grumbling and complaining, you know. And uh, James said, "Okay, so you do your grumble, and then at the ev at the end of the grumble, just add the phrase, and my life is really very blessed,' you know. And it's there's a this really delicious film where you see her, her saying." It kind of ruined my life, you know, because I could no longer do all the kvetching because I just realized there were so many blessings, you know, and this was when she was 92 and going, going blind, you know. And just to have that sense of, okay, and these blessings, and this blessing, and this breath, you know, to bring the enjoyment in to the... this life, you know, as a daily practice. A practice not just, you know, when we're outside in the garden, but also as we're sitting, you know, in the hall. What is it to not just notice the breath, not just observe the breath, which may not be a very helpful verb anyway, but to feel it and to enjoy it. Enjoy its freshness, enjoy its release. Not trivial, <laughs> you know. Profound, actually. You know? Transformative. Not just of moments, but as James's mother would say, you know, of of a life. You know? So there was much more I was going to say this evening, but I'll spare you. <laughs> mm. But just to end really with, with this encouragement about the em embodiment. You know. Lean in to those places in the body and those aspects of embodied experience that are nourishing, steadying, even just quietly okay, you know? The quiet okayness of the hands. Just get used to making much of that, you know? Really receiving it, really listening to it.
this the, you know the more we practice and the more we kind of understand about the body it's mysterious the body isn't it can you can you sense that you know it it appears according to how we imagine it consciously or unconsciously and we imagine it in many different ways it appears according to the intentions that we bring to it. If I bring an intention to push it away and to hate it, it appears in certain ways. If I bring a sense of appreciation or kindness to it, it appears differently. There's a way in which this practice invites us to let our bodies be uh, teachers, yes, and also portals into a quality of wonder, a quality of wonder about this world and this life. A quality of wonder that uh, both can soften and open our hearts and our sense of connection with others. That precious empathy and tenderness for, for life. And in that way be a, a kind of profound awakening a gradual, a gradual, but honestly profound awakening. That knows no end, knows no end. And takes us to the heart and the opportunity of being human. So let's just uh, pause for a few moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.